Hello, my name is Issa Mester and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I'm here today with Carrie Blakinger, an investigative researcher for the Los Angeles Times. Carrie Blakinger is visiting Dickinson this week to discuss her memoir with Provost and Dean Renee Kramer. Welcome, Ms. Blakinger. Thanks for having me. I was going to start with asking how you start the book, because you start the book with the quote, nobody heard him, the debt man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought, and not waving but drowning. From Not Waving But Drowning by C.D. Smith. Why did you choose this quote to start your memoir? So I've, I've always liked that poem. And I think that you know people who are just struggling in general can relate to it as a as I was in the book and as I think a lot of the other people that I describe in the book were. But also at one point, that was a poem that I had hung up on or pasted up on the bunk above me in jail. And we would use toothpaste to stick things to the metal and to the cinder block walls. And I had pasted that up and I, I looked at that a lot in jail. So when I got to the part of the book where I'd written where I'd referenced that, I was like, oh, maybe maybe this should be the the opening quote there. Yeah, it turns out you have to, like, it, it's interesting when you use an excerpt of a poem like that, like, you have to go get permission from, you know, the estate and pay for rights and all. And it wasn't that expensive, but it was just a process I'd never gone through. Um, some of the sort of logistics of inserting other things into your book. I didn't think about that question until like the girl that I work with here, she was talking to me about it. She's like, I'm so interested in that. And I thought that was a really good question because I didn't <laughs> think about it. Because I read the book three weeks ago, and so I forgot about like the opening quote. Well, you've read it more recently than I have. I have not like <laughs> cracked the spine or read it again since it came out. I was like, I'm mentally done with this. I can't keep reading yeah. it. But it's funny because now sometimes people will quoted at me in interviews or in you know speaking events and I'm like oh wow I, <laughs> I actually sounded smart. <laughs> you grew up going to private school for a while and you also did competitive figure skating you attended Harvard summer school and you were a Cornell Dean's List student. In what ways do you think this high achieving and strict and controlling environment that you were in and grew up in maybe has affected you over time? I mean, I think there's a lot of the sort of predictable ways that you would expect. I think one thing that I've only come to appreciate more as an adult is the role of a sport like figure skating. Obviously, it's it's very intense and you know time consuming sort of it really attracts a lot of high achievers. But, you know, I, I also think about how it, it really ingrains into you from a young age, like ranking your success, as opposed to other endeavors, like, I don't know, if you get into theater or writing, you know, I, I don't think you're sort of as wired to numerically rank your success. And, you know, the other thing about skating is, looking back, it's kind of wild how much how much of my life that meant I spent failing in some ways because I started working on for instance a double axle in like fifth or sixth grade and I didn't start landing it consistently until ninth that meant that like every day of middle school I fell hundreds and hundreds of times on the same thing like I just failed repeatedly like for hours recreationally during some really formative years 
which is kind of interesting thinking back. That seems like that's, I mean, I, I understand that people think of these sports as, as teaching resilience and stuff, but I'm also like, I don't know, maybe that's not necessarily positive to just spend all of middle school recreationally failing, you know? Obviously, I did get it in the end, but I can't imagine now doing that. I think now if I did something, if I tried something like that for two, three years and continued to fail every time, I think I would be like, okay, I have a limited number of hours on this planet. I think I'll move on, you know? So I think in some ways it sort of fed into some really black and white thinking and some sort of skewed ideas about success. But obviously, I think also there, there's sort of all the more predictable ways in which overachieving can just sort of lead to an implosion or like burnout. But I think those are the sort of more more commonly understood things. You were talking a lot about figure skating. My next uh, question was about it because I was wondering once you like stopped figure skating, if you ever went back and like started as, or still have a relationship with figure skating, do you do it recreationally or like follow the sport or the Olympics in any way? I'm friends with the people from my skating years. We're friends on Facebook. Like I'm still friends with my pair partner who's mentioned in the book. And, you know, I, I feel like I sort of secondhand see it because whenever there's, whenever there's Worlds or Olympics, like it's all over my Facebook feed because like these are my friends. But I don't skate. I, to me, that's not something that I think I would even necessarily enjoy recreationally. I... I prefer to remember what it felt like to be really good and sort of at the top of my game. And if I went back now, like I know that I would struggle with some of the things that came easily before. And I just don't think I would find that enjoyable. You know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, but you could just sort of do it for fun. And I'm like, yeah, I actually think this is something I sort of prefer to remember at the skill level I had then. Mm -hmm. If I think about what it feels like to do a triple sow cow, my bo- in my body, I feel like I can remember what that feels like to do it successfully and land it. And I, I like to hang on to that. I mean, also, I've lived in, you know, I'm, I now live in L.A., but I've lived in Texas for a number of years where uh, there are not as many ice rinks and figure skating is expensive and I'm in a very time-consuming job. I don't think I actually would have had time to write a book if I were skating on the side. I was wondering, going back to your time in college, how did you experience college after returning, after being in prison? I know you went back to finish your degree, and it was kind of in connection to, I remember doing my applications and the common application now. And the last question is always, have you committed a felony? What if you have committed a felony? Like, how does that change your educational opportunities if you have been convicted? So in in my case, I was, I had, you know, previously been admitted. So I just had to like reapply to a committee or a, a hearing board of some kind. I didn't have to go through the entire full application process again. So I didn't actually have to check that box personally. I have looked into that in the course of reporting some stories. And it's kind of funny, but when I was in Texas, I remember looking at a bunch of the universities and and what their I think we're focusing on state schools and what their applications looked like and what questions they were asking and and I was surprised that a lot of them either didn't ask or it wasn't disqualifying but you know what I've sort of gleaned in the places that I have looked at it because I've looked at it in New York and Texas is just that it's really inconsistent there are some schools that you're just not going to get in with a felony and then there are others where they don't even ask or they don't even take it into consideration or it doesn't matter at all. 
And then I think there's probably some schools where at this point it might actually be helpful if you are, you know, if you're applying to a school that has a robust like prison education program and you are planning to use that part of your past in a way that specifically contributes to that, I can imagine there might be some ways to frame that as if it's a benefit, which is certainly a change from where things were 10 or so years ago. And of course, certain convictions would impact your ability to be in certain locations or to get certain kinds of aid. So, you know, those are those are definite considerations. And then depending on what your career choice is, obviously a felony can have impacts on that. There's some states in which it is not clear if you can take the bar or you can't. And there's other states in which you can and it's been litigated. So like depending on what your sort of end goal is, it can also just impact the ways in which you can even use a degree. You mentioned in the book that you weren't able to be physically be on campus of Cornell. How did you manage that as well? So at that point I had, I think I had two classes left and one like paper to finish. So I finished the paper, that was fine. I did an independent study for one of the classes. So we met at an off-campus location and then I did a class that was available online, which is kind of wild because that was back in like 2013, 14, 15, somewhere in there, back before everything was online. <laughs> um, there was no like Zooms or things like that. It was, I guess it was all like independent reading and like message board type things. I don't even remember if there were any video lectures at all. I think there might not have been because I don't think I actually saw what the professor looked like until I met her afterwards. <laughs> but but yeah, that that was how I did that, which I think... I would have been really interested to see how other students would have reacted to someone so freshly out of prison, but I'm kind of glad for me back then that I did not end up doing that in person because I think that I, I think that would have been really daunting as my sort of first foray back into being around other people in a way that I would have been like open about my past. I also think when I just got out, I probably would have had a hard time dealing with some of the dealing so head on with some of the ways in which people view or approach people who've done time. You know, now I'm sort of used to it all. Like I'm I'm very online. I'm on TikTok, I'm on Twitter. Like I see the shitty comments and I I I suspect I would not have handled them as well back then. You kind of already touched on this. I know you said you said you haven't read your memoir itself, but I know you, you mentioned that you consistently kept journals while you were in college and in prison and in general. I was wondering how these texts were important for your memoir and how it felt going back through basically these journals and the memories connected. It was such a weird writing process. On the one hand, the stuff with the, that I had written down was kind of easy. Like, I had some, to some extent, remembered it, and then, you know, I'm reading it through, and it was kind of interesting seeing the transition as to how my thinking changed over time, especially when I read it through, like, cover to cover. That was interesting, but the the weird part about the writing process was not even the journals, per se, but the fact that you have all these gaps in between, all these other things you didn't write down that later became important, or things that predate journals that I didn't have written down. And that meant that part of the research process is literally just like sitting there remembering, which does not feel like work. Or like going down a Facebook rabbit hole and being like, what was that person's name that I did this thing with? And like, maybe I should call them and see how they remember it. And like, 
wasting time on Facebook and like staring at the wall, remembering what you did when you were high 15 years ago is like, that does not feel like work. So there'd be days where I'm like, wow, I feel like I just fucked around all day and did nothing. But it's actually sort of important for like a memoir research process. That's so interesting to think about. There's a lot of scholarly work, obviously, and there's also a lot of that in your book, but then there's this part of it too. Yeah, it's weird. Um, <laughs> I also called a lot of people. I reached out to almost everyone that I could find. So there's a lot of people where, you know, I didn't, it's not clear in there that I've like spoken to them, but like I called them, sort of asked what their recollections were. You know, I'm not sure what I would have done if like somebody had a vastly different recollection. I guess I probably would have said, you know, here's how I remember it, but this person remembers it this other way. But that didn't really happen. I was actually really surprised by how good and accurate my memory was, despite having done so many fucking drugs. <laughs> Did you keep in touch more after reaching out to people? After I think a lot of them I was in touch with to some capacity. There was some that I had to track down, but I didn't realize that I apparently stay in touch with people more than I guess a lot of people do until until a journalist wrote a feature on me in like 2021 or something and you know she was asking who I kept in touch with from the past and I started like naming all these people and then she was asking about other people that I mentioned and like did I keep in touch with them and she was like my god you like you keep in touch with everybody like I don't I don't know people that do this so I, you know, even if I don't talk to people on a regular basis, I've usually sort of looked them up and figured out like where they are, what they're doing, like connected with them at some point. 20 years ago it would have been really hard to find people. You know, people change their names, you have to look up in like a physical phone book. That's just not the case anymore. So it makes it easy to at least figure out where they are generally and then decide if you want a message. You say in your memoir, again, you felt like people were simply expecting you to write about prisons after you started being a journalist because you are a felon. And I feel like reading your work, I mean, now you focus a lot on prison injustice and just disparities within the U.S. prison system. And I feel like this feeling that you were describing early on when you were writing about that for the first time, that that changed. And I was wondering, like, how do you feel about it now and why do you think that might have changed if that's changed? I think that part of what I was thinking then and maybe didn't put into words as well was was also that I I didn't want to be doing reporting and have it sort of diminished because people would be like, oh, she's only good at it because she's a felon. Like, oh, she's only doing this thing because she's a felon. No one else cares about this. We don't need to read this. This is just sort of a, a biased party here. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted to do work that was clearly good just because it was good work, not like good work for a felon. You know, I wanted it to be journalism that people would care about, not just we'll read it because she's a felon. And I think, I, I think that was sort of my initial, part of my initial hesitation, a sort of gut feeling that I didn't put into words that well at the time. And I think, you know, at this point, I think I've gotten to a point where the reporting is good enough to stand on its own, regardless of what my history is. I do think that it has gotten more attention and it got more attention like at the outset because I was coming at it from such a different perspective and had a very specific past relating to it. But, you know, people do still use it to discredit me. 
when I moved to LA, I had, you know, a number of people tweeting at me and, you know, one person mentioned on like a live stream about how, you know, the LA Times, you know, went and hired a criminal to cover the sheriff's department, which in that case, by the way, is actually kind of ironic. Like it should almost be a requirement because like there was a prior sheriff who actually got arrested, convicted and sent to federal prison. So it kind of seems like maybe it should be a requirement for an LA Sheriff's Department reporter, like you should be a felon. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I mean, I think that it's it's surprising to see like the extent to which people will still bring it up as if it's a thing that they can use to discredit me, which is kind of wild because it's like, you know, more than a decade later and this was like a nonviolent drug crime. Yeah. It's actually a crime that, that in California would not even result in prison time typically now. So yeah, it's it, it's kind of interesting, but it does still, it, it is still used to discredit me. I mean, a lot has changed. I, I think in California, they had a particularly overcrowded system and they had to redo a little bit of like what counts as a felony versus a misdemeanor and what you're actually gonna go to time, you know, actually gonna get prison time for. and. I think the state, well, not I think, I mean, the state has become bluer over time. So there's there's been some clear shifts aside from, I think, you know, broader embrace of harm reduction and, you know, and, not, and decisions to just not prosecute people for possession and, and a lot of non-trafficking drug offenses. So that's, you know, part of a shift. I mean, there is certainly a time in California when I would have gotten more time for that, although I don't know the laws historically as well in California as I did in New York. And I should say, by contrast, in Texas, you would absolutely still get prison time for that. You get prison time for far less drugs in Texas than than I was arrested with. Like even just very small trace amounts you can go to, you can end up in the prison system. How did your personal experience in prison change or develop your understanding of mass incarceration? Was it different before you were in prison? I just don't think I had any understanding of 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 the prison system in general. I'm I don't think I really knew the difference between jail and prison until I was in jail. It wasn't something that I had like interfaced with a lot in my life. Like I knew people that had done time just from being in drug circles, like you meet people who've been in and out. But I definitely didn't have any sense of what that meant or where exactly the flaws were in the system and how sort of broken things were. So it's not so much that it even changed my understanding as that it simply gave me an understanding at all. And then you were saying you like your work is very focused on prison injustice and in your work and your book and in general you focus you talk a lot with prisoners and people who are still in prison and interview them are there like special rules or things that are especially difficult when doing that maybe also with men on death row in general like how are those difficult situations for you so i mean logistically the you know death row interviews are are difficult logistically because for any Texas prison, actually, you can only, as a reporter, interview someone for one hour every 90 days. And that is, that's challenging to write a story about that, based off that. Like, if it's a sort of once-and-done story about a given case, it's a little easier because you can sort of do the rest of it and go there knowing you want to, like, fill in certain gaps with quotes and sort of tailor the interview accordingly. But I recently did a 
long narrative feature about how they play Dungeons and Dragons on death row. I spent like three years reporting that. And, you know, a lot of this was based on going once every 90 days for an hour. There were two main guys in the story. And one of them got executed in 2020. So pretty early on in the reporting. And then his best friend, his best friend is still there. And I have, I go every 90 days to interview him, which is just a very logistically difficult way to write a story because they don't currently allow reporters to have phone calls. It's also obviously very emotionally charged covering death row heavily. I feel like almost every interview ends up being like there's something like heartbreaking about it. And I know that there's, I, I, I post a lot of TikToks about these things. And there's definitely a contingent of people that'll just be like, ah, why do you care about these killers and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think a lot of them are not what people think of when they think of what a death row prisoner is. I think people tend to assume that they are all serial killer rapists, which is a really small percentage of the people that are there. A lot of them were kids, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them were, you know, late teens, early 20s. And, you know, they committed some crime like a convenience store robbery and ended up killing someone in the process. That's, I think, one of the most common reasons people end up on death row. And obviously, if somebody is killed, like, that's a horrible, like, that's horrible, you know. But I think a lot of people also don't understand how random it is for somebody to even end up on death row. Because, you know, if you did one crime in, I don't know, New York and did the same crime in Texas, like, you're going to end up on death row in Texas, potentially, but you absolutely won't in New York because they don't have the death penalty anymore. And if you commit the same crime in a, you know, a small rural county in Texas, you will not end up on death row because they simply don't have the money to do a death row trial because they're really, a death penalty trial is really expensive. You know, I think a lot of people don't sort of understand how arbitrary this is and it's, you know, when when you're there actually talking to someone who has spent decades in solitary confinement waiting to die, you know, for a crime that they committed a long time ago and that, you know, it's, it's essentially sort of arbitrary that they're even there. Like, it's still, no matter what, a sort of heartbreaking human moment. Yeah. Like, not taking away from their victim and the fact that that family will never get that person back. Like you're still watching someone grapple with the fact that they are about to be killed by the state. And even if you think they are a horrible person, because in some cases I do, like in some cases that's very clear, it's still just a really difficult human moment to watch. One of the guys that I have been exchanging letters with for several years is actually scheduled to be executed on Tuesday on like World Day Against the Death Penalty, they've, they've scheduled his execution. And uh, he has a few appeals left at this point that are still pending. I'm not sure that any of them will be successful. And, you know, he has a clemency application in which I think, I think they'll probably hear back on that tomorrow. The odds of that going in his favor are like extremely low, not, not zero, but extremely low. And yeah, so I don't know, I I actually just met him for the last time in person at my last set of death row interviews. But one of the really remarkable things about this that I didn't expect, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, he definitely did the crime in question, probably didn't do some of the 
other crimes they claim that he did. And it's also crazy that he had some very serious mental illness. He, you know, hallucinated like he was like hallucinating snakes and demons and things in the months before the crime, which is kind of wild in that if that happened now, I think that mental health history would have been taken into more consideration than it was. But one of the crazy things was this week I called the victim's family and I was, you know, as I would routinely do, I try to get, you know, I don't want them to feel left out. So I want to get comment from all sides. Right. And I called them and the the woman I talked to was like, yeah, no, we're hoping for clemency. And I had not at all expected that. It was this sort of like rare moment of like of hope in some ways for me because it's just so rare for me in this job to see people, you know, to see people willing to give mercy. And it was just not what I was expecting. So it's, I guess, sort of a bittersweet interview because on the one hand, I was like, wow, this like actually sort of warms my heart in some ways that this person who whose life was changed irrevocably is willing to give mercy to this man in this case. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I think that odds are that the execution will probably go through anyways. Yeah. We're out of time. So uh, once again, on the behalf of the Clark Forum, thank you so much for sharing your time and your perspective today. I'm so excited for your talk later tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.